Today's horror story is written by Toucan the Rapper. I am writing to you as a man midway through an epiphany. Not the positive personal growth kind of epiphany, either. The negative kind. The kind where you realize fate has railroaded you on a journey toward darker days than anyone could hope to endure. Judging by what I've just read of the notes he'd kept in his study, I think things were much the same for Father. I think that's why he made the decision which led to all the somber guests consoling Mother downstairs. I'd always wanted to be in here, in his study, to see what he'd do when the hour shut away from the rest of us. I just never imagined it would be because he decided to cease living. Now that I finally know what occupied his time, I doubt there ever could have been alternative circumstances. Many peculiarities from my childhood seem far less peculiar now. Why I was never allowed crayons, paints, chalks, or pencils. Why no photographs or paintings hung in the halls of the manor. Why my strict homeschool curriculum included no art lessons. Why I'd get the belt if I started doodling absentmindedly during handwriting practice. I had a childhood full of whys. I've spent a few hours up here in Father's study now, as much as I wish it wasn't so. I think I have found my becauses. The first were here in the letter. He'd left it on the front desk for me, lamp on, making sure it was the very first thing my eyes were drawn to when I took my first steps into the once forbidden room. Charles, I have instructed Winston to give you the keys to the study upon your arrival. My instructions were vague, However, he has served me a great many years, and I trust he'll understand the implications of my request. I anticipate my passing will be somewhat unexpected. One would be being disingenuous if one were to claim this isn't regrettable. Unfortunately, there are no alternatives. I do not have any conventional wisdom to pass on. As you will find, Charles, I have not been forthright with you in regarding our lineage. I leave this letter as a final instruction. In my drawer is a lockbox containing all you'll need to know for the coming years. I pray what you find within doesn't break you as it eventually broke me. I am not a man for apologies, Charles. I trust you can interpret my intent. I hope you know me well enough to not mistake the vice of pride for lack of sentiment. Father. I'll skip the emotional unpacking. My father had made exit from this world on his own terms and left little in the way of explanation. Our relationship was always strained, but only the most heartless of men would not be moved under such circumstances. However, I am not writing you from a need to share that half hour I spent sobbing into my hands at his desk. 
My epiphany is not one of paternal understanding. It's entirely of what father had in that damn box. The unlocked container itself was unremarkable. A beaten aluminium thing no wider, longer, or deeper than a cereal box. I managed to compose myself a little at this realization. I wondered if father ever found out about that secret stash of lucky charms Winston had kept for me and then realized that in a house ran as meticulously as father's, the forbidden Saturday morning indulgence could have only come from him. It was unmarked, aside from a family history sticker, which must have been produced with the label maker in the same desk drawer. Inside the box, underneath some pens and a notepad, were two books. The first was a sketchbook, the second, a thick scrapbook with frayed corners and a tea-stained cardboard cover. This thick volume of clippings, letters, photographs, and diagrams is what triggered my current existential crisis. I didn't open this book at first, though. No, first I decided to look through the purple velvet-bound sketchbook. From the note on the inside cover, I knew who it belonged to. Father. My God, all of it is true. Winston, if you're reading this because something happened, please take care of Carol and Charles. The ink of the message was faint, faded. I knew it must have been written decades ago, since never in living memory had I heard father refer to me as anything other than the boy when parenting through his manservant. No time to dwell on that, though. Father's sketches caught my attention with much greater ravenous fever than any arrangements of words and letters could. Drawings, art, illustration, paintings, all were forbidden by my father. There was no greater blasphemy in his household than the creation of anything remotely visual. And yet, in my hands were pages and pages of his own works, detailed, intricate, captivating. Not in a pleasing way, though. No, father's pictures were captivating in a way that had viewers waking, sweat-soaked and screaming in the middle of the night for years to come. The first was a portrait of a man with mouths for eyes, dark and macabre, but not much I chalked up beyond the product of a disturbed mind. A small note in the corner from father informed me the haunting, Geiger-esque being from his nightmares was named Zarazasale. It was drawn in Brio, probably the very same ballpoint pen he stored in the lockbox. The rendering was so realistic it could have been a photograph. My initial reaction wasn't to be unsettled so much as in admiration. As I turned the pages, however, my nausea in the wake of that inside cover message from the father of my past grew. My God, all of it is true. When attached to those words, the steadily more horrific illustrations moved further from uncanny to dread-inspiring. The father's skill somehow improved from the perfection of that first faded sketch, too. As I turned through years of pages, I found his works growing ever realer 
more defined, as if they were at all possible given the photorealistic quality of that tooth-eyed man on page one. Ten pages in, there was a two-page spread diagram of a creature father had labeled as Therotherothax. He depicted the eight-limbed monstrosity bearing down on a man barely one-tenth his size. The lifelike quality of the details was utterly uncapturable with mere words. The light on the beast's invertebrate flesh seemed almost to glisten and shimmer, the faint creases and folds of its warming back almost rippling under my gaze. My breath caught in my throat when I first saw Father's rendition of those dead, glassy eyes, of that human baby's face the size of a wrecking ball, and especially the bus-sized maggot's body he'd drawn trailing into the inky dark behind it. God, all of it is true. A hundred pages later, Father had moved from abyssal creations like his Thertherothax and the mouth-eyes Zerazafzael. By the middle of the pad, Father had evolved into sketching vast, unwavering landscapes. Landscapes so real I'd get vertigo if I stared too long. My gut would lurch, a rushing, tingling sensation growing behind the skin of my face. Like my body was convinced it would fall into those worlds on the page created in ballpoint, by my stern, unimaginative father. One was a cramped, cragged world of sharp, spiraling mountains, a range drill-like Everest jostling for space under a starless sky. Above chasms so deep, a falling man would plummet far below where one would reach the core of our Earth. I could make out things in the distance, standing behind and amongst the twisting rock pillars sprouting hair-like from each mountainside. They were tall things, slathering things, things like erect slugs. With teeth so square, father must have measured each of the dozen one-millimeter white segments with a ruler and compass. The longer I looked, the more of the distant figures I noticed. I had to remind myself the figures were drawing Poking out from their caves to stare back at you was impossible. Almost as impossible as the fact I knew their immaculately rendered alien sun was simultaneously blue and orange, despite father's drawings all being monochromatic. Another of his glimpses into inhospitable realms which stood out to me was the island in the blue desert, titled The Core of Geertherix. Again, don't ask me how I knew those black ink dunes were blue, but I did. The full, technicolor memories I have when I think back to describe it are proof of this. I thought those rolling blue hills were an ocean at first. That is, until I realized the granular texture Father had chosen to shade them with wasn't accidental. How he found the time or patience to distinguish each of those countless trillions of grains, I'll never know. The sands weren't the central focus of this piece, however. Father's muse here was clearly the continent-sized island that floated above the fields of dunes. He'd seen it clearly in his mind's eye, the glistening rocks hewn from flesh, the skyscraper tall tripods that marched along its surface, 
the great pillar of human corpses with the man in a cloud of shadow sat atop a throne at its peak. My father was not an imaginative man. His world was one of accounts, numbers, and trades. That's what made the cloud of solid ink around the throne and all the undrawn figures I somehow knew waited within. All the more terrifying. All of it is true. It was the last few dozen pages that prompted me to throw the sketchbook across the room and yell every profanity I knew. There was no admiration of artistic talent when viewing these. The only emotion in me, other than sweaty-palmed dread, was pity, although it was very, very short-lived. The last sketches, drawn in the last few years leading up to father's decision to bathe with meters of extension cord and a toaster, judging by the freshness of the ink, were a testimony to the madness he suffered through in silence. For the first time, I started to feel guilt for the decades I'd spent in self-imposed exile from the family home. My remorse was short-lived, however. Father had clearly spent more time up here with his drawings, as I now knew. In my years away from home, the last quarter of the book was taken entirely by a single illustration, spanning sides and sides and sides of thick paper. The intricacy of the details was incredible. So much work had gone in that I couldn't imagine him having completed it in any time frame shorter than two years. In the hands of any other artist, I doubt it would have been clear that those pen strokes were a multi-page portrait. Father wasn't any other artist, though. It was an image of a being, although how I knew this I couldn't tell you. It had no form, per se. In my mind, I somehow knew that the reason Father had carried this image for pages upon pages was that, whatever this abyssal thing was, it was so vast as to render quantifying form, as we understood it, would be impossible. The only rational detail the human mind could grasp in Father's portrayal of this being were eyes. He'd drawn pages and pages of them. A behemoth, bodiless entity spanning entire solar system constituted of nothing except stellar gases and star-sized eyes. Except, no, there wasn't a body to it. Father had blackened the spaces between those millions of eyes with permanent markers. Any memories I have of an unknowable celestial anatomy within those solid inky plumes is my imagination. My mind playing tricks on me. They have to be. At least, that's what I keep telling myself. Father's art disturbed me by conveying more than should ever be possible with paper and a ballpoint pen. The last image, though. That last image. The one father labeled Hare was far beyond inexplicable. It was maddening. It was when the eyes started blinking back at me that I launched the book from my grasp. I can still feel their gaze on me now, even though the book is closed and still discarded in the corner of the room. I kept trying to convince myself it didn't happen. Pictures don't move and they definitely don't observe you back. Father's message, though, 
It is true. My epiphany began to form as I was reading through the second volume Father left me. I placed the tea-stained scrapbook in front of me once I had composed myself. With one hand I opened it to the first page, my other poised with a pen and pad ready to take notes. I knew the history of my maternal family well. Mother hailed from a wealthy line of entrepreneurs and financiers, old money whose blood and fortune could be traced back to the Habsburgs. My paternal lineage, however, had always been a closely guarded secret. That's why I knew that when I saw the name Stuart Bramfield, I had to start taking notes. Even then, I knew there was going to be a lot to emotionally unpack. What I didn't realize was just how many of those unpacked emotions would be unbridled terror. I recognized the sullen man in the newspaper clipping instantly. That furrowed brow and thin face could only have belonged to my father's father, Stuart Bramfield my long-lost paternal grandfather. How I wish he'd never been found, him and the others that came before. I was so much happier when they'd remained lost. In the photo, he was standing next to a painting. Even though the photo was faded by time and blurred by the 1940s camera quality, I shuddered when I saw it. It was the same figure from the first page of Father's sketchbook the mouth-eyed Zarazaciel character I'd mistakenly believed he'd created himself. What unsettled me so much about my grandfather's rendition was just how similar it was to my father's sketch, and how much more detailed the painting was in the photo than the painter. The headline attached to the piece did little to ease my nerves. Mass Hysteria After Late Bramfield Auction Father had included the article in its entirety. My grandfather, Stuart Bramfield, was apparently a painter in high regard. After his death in 1939, the year of father's birth, his remaining unsold works were auctioned off to a collective of financially endowed admirers. Not a single piece was unsold. The mass hysteria in the headline refers to the fact that, the next morning, all 108 attendees, including the auctioneer, had taken their own lives though not without gouging out their own eyes first. I stared at the painting of the mouth-eyed man behind my grandfather. Mass hysteria. Portrait leered back at me through the photograph, daring me to believe the flimsy excuse. My God, all of it is true. Eventually, the exploits of Stuart Bromfield and his resilient, shattering paintings gave way to clippings about his father, my great-grandfather, Lionel Bramfield. Whereas Stuart had been the quasi-celebrity darling of the more macabre-inclined wealthy elites, Stuart Bramfield's gifts gained him no such acclaim. No, for Lionel, as I found via a letter from my great-grandmother, the artistic visual genius running through my veins brought nothing but a slow death in an asylum ten years after grandfather's birth in 1890. Noted as dating from 1898, the letter from Carolina Boxstead reads, Lionel, this is the last communication you shall receive. Despite my requests, you continue to persist in sending your letters. I have not read them, and I have not told little Stuart the truth of you, nor shall I ever. 
The days of wishing you'd see through your delusions are long behind me, Lionel. I have moved on and taken up with another man, a widower with business interests in England. It is a convenient arrangement. Stuart and I will be sailing for Plymouth by the week's end. I have left no instructions on how to contact us with the asylum. This is the final farewell. Even if by some miracle you recover, don't come looking for us. I can't close my eyes without seeing the girls, Lionel. I told you, no, begged you to put down those brushes. Those portraits had the devil in them, Lionel Bramfield, and you let him channel himself through them by your hand. I don't blame Rosaline for what she did. I hope her soul has some rest. She didn't ask to stumble into your studio to see that ghastly mural. You know, I vomited twice when I saw it. I should never have let you convince me not to burn it. She was just a maid, one of the common folk. She had not the education to comprehend what she saw. How could I lay the blame for her madness or the actions that followed with her? It wasn't her fault. It was yours. There is no curse. Not that it matters anymore to me, but I hope for your own sake you can one day see that. No curse. Just the darkness in your soul and the paints and brushes you used to set it free. Stuart is all I have left, Lionel. It wasn't only the girls that died that day. Or Rosaline. But my love for you, along with them. Please, don't try and find us. Carolina Boxstead. Father has attached a newspaper clipping on the next page, describing the grisly affair. It took place in 1891. Apparently, the maid of a wealthy Wisconsin family had gone mad, killing the landowner's three young daughters before hanging herself. After that was a writ of admission from the St. Dionysus Asylum for the Irreversibly Mad. Apparently, Carolina Boxstead wasn't the only person unsettled by Lionel's paintings. After she'd shown them to her brothers, the Boxstead boys had dragged Lionel to St. Dionysus themselves, though not without losing an ear and several fingers between them. There were no examples of Lionel's work, but from the photographs of his son's exhibits and my father's sketches, I could clearly imagine the horrors which led Rosalie and the maid to butcher three innocent children and then herself. God, all of it is true. The next ancestor father had uncovered was who I assumed to be Lionel's father, Marcus Branfield. There wasn't any clue as to how father knew this man's name, as the only clippings under it were a series of ancient Sempia tin plate photographs. I could tell instantly the grinning homesteader in the forest and log cabin was of my family tree, though. He had the thinness to his face and pointed chin, characteristic of, apparently, all Bramfield men. In each photo, Marcus stood, brimming ear to ear, in front of a painting. Each tied my stomach in a fresh knot, each knot a thousand times tighter than the last. One was of their Thorthax, the baby-faced maggot thing of my father's own nightmares. 
In Marcus's depiction, the thing was snatching up whole horses in its bird-like skeletal arms, stuffing them whole into its toothless maw. Another was a large portrait of a girl with no face. Her jaw, brow, scalp, nose, all had been removed to reveal gore so lifelike I could have sworn drips fell from her glistening cheeks when I was looking away. The final of the dozen or so tin plates was a landscape of a burning pyre. The rabid faces of the madmen dancing around it caused me to yelp when I first turned to that particular page. Their bright eyes bulged almost out of the photograph, the thick smell of smoke tricking itself into my mind with every second I spent looking at the Sempia Square. The worst part was that, after a few minutes, I had to convince myself I couldn't hear the child tied to a pole above the flames, crying. Each of Marcus Bramfield's paintings disgusted me more than I thought possible. They were just as detailed, realistic, photo-like as father's sketches. The beaming pride on their painter's face didn't help. Nausea rose in my stomach. I recognized too many of those tin plate nightmares. I had seen them in father's sketchbook. The paintings in the tin plate photographs were far too small to copy with such accuracy and attention to detail. Yet Father most certainly wasn't a man with an imagination. It didn't make sense. All of it is true. My epiphany started on the final page. It was sparked by a letter. A crumpled note written in pencil, older even than the sempia snaps of Marcus and his nightmarish paintings. My darling, you know I must leave you. We should never have disturbed the things in the forest. It is I that caught their attention, so it is I that should lead them away. I don't want you or the boy to suffer. He started seeing the visions too. They are there whenever I close my eyes. Ever since I touched that damned blue-orange light, all I can see is the same horrors and night gas the boy draws. Don't ask me how, but they got him too. Every Bramfield man, the thing said, said we'd be, what was it, conduits, whatever that means. I don't know about all that, my darling. All I know is that I got to get these heathen visions to stop. Look, I'm going to fix this. Even if it takes until the end of time, I'll make it right. I went back for that light to see if I could find those damn things, get them to lift this this curse. But they were gone. There were tracks leading into the forest, though. I'm going to start there, because I have to somewhere. There are things out there, my darling. I've seen them. I've seen them every night when I close my eyes. I can whittle them as though they were stood in front of me, lifelike and way better than anything I've carved. You know I've never been no damn good at it. Don't you worry, though. I'm going to find them and kill every last one of the bastards until they fix our damn boy. I can't come back until I sort this, no matter what I find. If I don't come back, please live your life. Your heart is too big to be filled by a dead man. Eternally, your Obadiah. Father's warning rang over and over as I closed the book. It couldn't be true. 
There was no such thing as curses. There was clearly some kind of hereditary schizophrenia in the males of my line. Yes, that had to be it. That was the only explanation, surely. I went to check the notes I thought I'd been taking as I read. And screamed. The notepad I'd been scribbling on had no notes. All the pages I distinctly remember filling with thoughts and questions on my complex paternal history were wordless. Despite all my memories to the contrary, my hand hadn't been writing. It had been drawing. I swore over and over, repeating every curse word I knew as I flicked through the pages my ink-stained hand had rendered. They were, all of them, of eyes. The same eyes my father had filled the last few months of his time meticulously sketching. The same eyes that blinked back at me when I screamed at them. The wake downstairs is wrapping up. Winston will come to check on me soon, no doubt. Or mother. Thank God the estate is so big. I think that's the only reason nobody heard the smashing glass. My cries and screams or the banging as I slammed my guilty hand against the desk until it broke. I don't know how I'm going to explain this to them. They'll think I'm mad that I've had a breakdown just like father. Have me committed to an asylum like Lionel Bramfield to save me from myself and the insanity waiting in my genes. I don't think it is madness, though. That notepad is still here, still staring back at me from the floor, and the eyes are still blinking. I'm going to show them. I have to, otherwise they won't believe me. I just hope they're made of stronger stuff than Lionel's made. I don't know what to do. One day my hand will heal, and then how long do I have? I don't remember doing those drawings, but they are there. The thoughts racing through my mind are vivid and visual in a way they've never been. Every time I close my eyes, I am bombarded by a parade of nightmares. The Bramfield curse is real. There's no escaping it. This is my epiphany. I can see why father killed himself.